On today's episode of Replays, we are joined by Austin Valley. Austin Valley is an Orlando resident. I've known Austin for many years. This is a lot of fun to have this conversation with him. Recently, he started Orlando Yimby. Yimby being yes in my backyard. Yimby's mission is to promote affordable housing. Their four core policy principles are legalize housing, stop the sprawl, build more affordable housing, and prioritizing people, not cars. It's an interesting conversation. Buckle up. All right, so we are here with Austin Valley. Me and Austin go uh, somewhat way back. We've known each other for a long time, but um, you know, I've been—I uh, told you when we talked originally a couple weeks ago that I've been following you from afar in some of your uh, hobbies and passions that you've been pursuing. So, why don't you give us a little introduction on yourself, who you are, and and then we'll uh, we'll, we'll go from there. Sure, that sounds great. And thanks so much, Justin, for the chance to come and have this conversation. Um, like you said, you know, we've known each other for gosh, really decades. I mean, I, I grew up in central Florida, um, and have spent most of my life here. Um, and as I think many of us have, we've have experienced with the housing market, um, people we love have experienced the housing market. We see it on the front page of the newspaper, on news sites every day. It really even before COVID, but it has really accelerated since then the last couple of years for some important reasons. But even before that, for a long time, um, there's been some affordability issues around housing and the area. I live in Orlando, city of Orlando and College Park specifically. And so I'm most familiar with Orlando and um, our work touches at Orlando Yimby. And of course, I'll talk a little bit more about Orlando Yimby is we, we focus on Orange County specifically, and then city of Orlando in particular, some into Winter Park a little bit, but this is, is where we're sort of anchored. And so, you know, about a year ago or so, um, I was just looking to get more involved in my community for a bunch of reasons. As you know, had a baby, had reflected on what am I doing with my life? How do I get more involved in my community in some way? And so I reached out to some people that I knew that were involved in some various ways, mostly around educating the public writing about transportation around housing. Right. And I just asked, hey, how can I volunteer? I just wanna give a little bit of my time here and there, uh, be part of something. And everybody that I asked at least said, you know, what you're talking about doesn't really exist here or nothing quite like that. And so one person I asked and he said, well, that doesn't exist, but why don't we do it? Let's just, let's jump into it. And so he and I were the nudge that each other needed. And we embarked on this journey that eventually ended up to be us starting this organization that's called Orlando Yimby. And for those who might not be aware, which I think many at this point still are not, Yimby stands for Yes in My Backyard. And we are a pro-housing organization. We advocate for housing abundance. And we position ourselves against what maybe some people have heard of, which is a NIMBY, which is somebody who says, yes, we need more housing. Yes, we need these sorts of things in our communities, but not in my backyard. Right. And when everybody says that over and over again, then there's no place that this sort of housing is being built. And so what we wanted to be was just a voice in the conversation around uh, making sure that we are building enough housing. And so we've been around for about a year or so. Again, we focus mainly in Orlando, though other parts of Orange County as well, especially near UCF and, and other spots like that. And we advocate for more housing and more affordable housing. So oftentimes this is 
um, income constrained housing, but oftentimes it's not. Oftentimes it's just, we need more housing full stop. Uh, you know, we believe in supply and demand. And when prices are too high, you need supply or you need to reduce demand, but that you don't want to reduce demand to people that gets ugly. Uh, so the other way to fix that is to increase supply. And so that, that's how we, that's how we seek to solve um, a lot of issues. Affordability is one of them. There's more than that as well, but that's mainly what we focus on. So what is your background? Walk me through that a little bit and kind of, that obviously kind of drove you to this point to some extent. So what's that look like? Yeah, so my education is in economics, and then I have my graduate degree in public policy. And I had done some policy work early on in my career, but then my career took um, a, a complete shift. And um, I work in the media and entertainment industry today, doing business development work um, that really has nothing to do with this advocacy work that I do. But I, I love my job. I find a lot of fulfillment in it. But I'd always had this itch to stay plugged into that work that I that I used to do and that, that my education was in. And so absolutely, as you know, that it started, I couldn't quite find the right way to scratch it. And so that that is definitely a big part of what led me here to this is finding something outside of my day job that could fulfill another part of me that I, I had always wanted to have be fulfilled. Um, and look, I, I think I, I tap into a lot of the, the, the skills and competencies that I've learned in my 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 business career, my professional career, that have lent themselves into this advocacy work that, that we do, right? We do a lot of communication. We do a lot of writing, a lot of relationship building um, that I've, I've learned in my professional career that I think has helped in the advocacy work as well. And look, there's a lot that I still don't know, a lot that I still don't know when it comes to advocacy and organizing, um, because that's not what my background is. But I think that I also can bring something new to those, to those circles because of my background. And it's, it's all about being humble in the spots that you don't know yep. much of anything, but also being comfortable with and confident enough to say, hey, I do bring this skill set. Why don't we think about doing it like this and, and hoping to add something to what we're trying to do in that way? I often think passion uh, overcomes that, ag ad that lack of advocacy background, right? Mm. People can get behind somebody who's passionate about something. So I think far too often we see advocates who you know, really have no, uh, no opinion on the subject. They just like <laughs> advocating, right? So yeah, that's, there's been some fun, to your point, I mean, when you're passionate about it, you have a really clear worldview, right? And, and you can have great conversations with people who disagree with you or who agree with you, but sometimes it's, it's jarring to walk into conversations with people who don't care at all, but they're right. in a position where you, I would expect you to have a position one way or the other, but it's just a blank canvas. And sometimes that can be good. Sometimes it's not so easy to advocate or to organize uh, with those folks, but um yeah, it's it's passion can can get you a, a long way. So a couple of things. I'm glad you told me how to say Yimby. I, I, <laughs> I knew what it stood for. I didn't know the uh, if it was if it was just a uh, just an acronym or if you, you pronounce it like that. So that's a good clarification for me. But as you know, I'm I'm pro housing as well. You know, I'm in the in the real estate industry. So kind of following you from afar uh, and kind of watching some of the stuff you've written on is what kind of intrigued me to have this conversation because I think it's certainly interesting. Um, and, and you probably find yourself surrounded by a lot of different outside of this uh, particular topic, people, backgrounds, political views. It seems like it covers a wide spectrum of people. Um, and so that's why I, I'm kind of interested to kind of peel back some of the layers and, and understand a little bit more about ultimately what the goals are. Um, so you want to go into that? I mean, are, is there kind of a, a few set basic, um, you know, kind of goals of Yimby? Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll give you the goals and then I'll, I'll speak to the point you're making, which is such an important one, which is 
the weird cross-cutting across different types of organizations who, who might be attracted to it. But our, our goals in short are, um, in short is, is to build more housing. Um, and especially what we say is to build housing near opportunity. So we, we especially wanna focus on building housing near jobs, building housing near transit, which Orlando does now have some. 15 yeah. years ago, it was a different story, but we do have that. And so we wanna focus on building housing near that. Um, and so that, that's what we focus on is, is building more housing in those places. We do the, we do so, at least we frame these, um, there's a lot of reasons why you would want to, but we focus on three particular reasons. One is affordability. I mentioned supply and demand earlier. We've seen some data from the census that says that over the last 10 years, the um, population of greater Orlando has increased at a rate of one and a half times as fast as the housing supply. So there's just, we're just out of whack. Um, the, yeah. the rental vacancy rate is something like 5% which is considered full in the industry. You want something closer to 10, 15% vacancy to start to see prices start to, to tick down. And then I, I'm sure you know this, that uh, the article that came out recently said that uh, the Realtors Association has been measuring number of homes for sale over the last few decades. And we just hit a record low number of homes for sale. And so we view this again, supply and demand, that there's a supply issue. And then that's driving a lot of the affordability issues that we see here in Orlando. The second is for environmental reasons. So again, as we focus on building housing near opportunity, near transit, near jobs, that can reduce commutes. It can reduce our need to build over um, wetlands, build over forested areas. Um, we would instead prefer to build where we're already built out. Let's take a you know um, Fashion Square Mall, a giant mall that's yep. dead or dying in a big parking lot. Let's put some housing there so that we don't have to go build more housing, you know, further out into East Orange County where there isn't anything built yet. And we'd have to build some highways out there. So the second is the environmental one. And then the third is economic development. Um, you know, when we think about, uh, I like to say that the best thing you can do for a restaurant is put four floors of housing on top of it. Now they have a, a customer base who can go and, and, and buy housing there, or excuse me, um, buy, buy food there. Yeah. So we wanna bring people near to commerce, um, I, I think too a lot about you know dense dental density walking walkable developments. There is seemingly no end to consumer demand for good urbanism. People spend thousands of dollars to go to travel to Amsterdam or Boston or Copenhagen or Paris or London and just walk around for a week or a day even sometimes. And so we we think a lot about. You know, people will go seek out Baldwin Park for the night just to go enjoy dinner or, or go, go do some activity. We need to be building out these neighborhoods that attract businesses, that attract customers. 75 million people a year already visit greater Orlando. So let's go build some of these neighborhoods out that are in our city, capture some of those eyeballs and some of those dollars, build them a, a train that gets them right there. And that's economic activity. That's the kind of commerce that, that we want to see. So it's all these things combined. Um, and that's why, to your point, Justin, it's a really interesting space where we have some strange bedfellows that are part of this alliance to try to do this sort of thing. You have some folks who are mainly focused on poverty alleviation mm -hmm. and helping support those folks who can't afford a place to live. Um, you, we also attract environmentalists and people who are trying to preserve green space or reduce commutes or, or focus on public transit. And then absolutely, there's a, 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 a strong interest from the business community as they think as they think about, you know, we're attracting jobs here. 
But then are those individuals, do they have to go live out in Lake County because there's no place to live? Well, now we just, sometimes we just paid a business to move here, but their employees are living out in Lake County. So we're only recapturing a portion of that, of that value. Or just in general, you know, we, we want that growth to occur here because um, that economic growth can, can, can lift um, folks throughout, throughout the region. And so uh, we found some interest there. So there's a lot of ways to come to it. But um, we think there's a lot of reasons to want to build more housing, and and that attracts different people depending on what their priority is. So one thing I, I talk to people a lot when they're looking at Orlando, looking at moving here, and I, and I feel like just the way I've framed it, you know, is we've almost started burrowing a little bit, kind of like the you know the 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 suburbs around New York, right, Manhattan, right, where you've got. Mm-hmm. You do have some some areas that are that are their own pockets. People don't leave their pockets if they can help it. Um, you know, I find it funny around town. People are like, well, where should I live? Windermere, Winter Park, or Oviedo? And it's like you've got to talk to people in all of these areas. However, the people in Windermere they only love Windermere, right? Mm-hmm. And they're, they're gonna they're gonna downplay Winter Park, and Winter Park's gonna downplay yeah. Windermere. And it's like everybody has their thing, and it's because it works for them or whatever it is, or their communities there. Um, but it is interesting. A lot of these areas have started building and I'm, I'm in Oviedo right now, kind of Oviedo on the park has kind of built its own little, um, you know, downtown pocket. And, uh, we're seeing this across town, which is, which is really cool. It's definitely a lifestyle increase. I think for a lot of people when they can be close to that, live, work and play in the same area. I hundred percent agree. I think that that's look, I mean, what are, what are we, we're trying to build communities, right? That, that's what, when we talk about housing, housing is just a part of a community. And what we want to do is build communities, build neighborhoods um, that people want to live and find, find fulfillment in those neighborhoods. We have, in, as, as you know, in the city of Orlando, we have these main street districts. And some of what you're talking about follows those, right? I live in College Park, so it's a College Park main street district. We have Edgewater that runs along it. You have the Mills 50 main street district. You have Audubon Park. And part of, we think, a way to empower those main streets is, again, to bring more people into them, build up a little bit, give them some more amenities, some character to each of them so you have more people who can live in them and contribute to them and support those businesses. There's a there's definitely some main streets in Orlando that, you know, those businesses struggle because there's some of them have really cool businesses, but there's not a lot of residents who live near there because it's, you know, low density, even close to downtown. And so it's hard to support those. The other one that's an interesting data point that we've started to track recently, and I don't remember the percentage in front of me, but I can picture the Venn diagram of people who live in the city of Orlando and people who work in the city of Orlando. And there's actually not a lot of overlap between those mm-hmm. things at all. Right. And so that is one metric that we think that our policymakers should at least think about is helping people work and live in the same spot. And how do you do that? There's different ways that you can think about doing that. Um, but, but part of that is, is letting people, having more housing opportunities for people to do that. You'd have to rethink transportation in some ways, um, but that's what, that's what we want, right? That's, it's sort of a, to your point too, how it sort of cuts across politics in some ways. In some ways, you know, progressives are very attracted to that, mass transit, these communities, but also it's, it's also sort of a sort of old fashioned conservative idea of these communities and neighborhoods where you work, you shop, you go to church, you go to school with the same people, you build out this tight-knit community that um, when you don't have a sufficient level of people who can live there because you don't have the density support it, those communities kind of get torn apart over time and become more transient. And um, it kind of cuts against that kind of old-fashioned American ideal of what a neighborhood, what a neighborhood is. 
I think where the rubber meets the road and, and kind of goes to my next question of like, I think the difference in the political um, persuasions is how do you achieve it, right? Mm-hmm. We could all have the same vision. Uh, the conservative would say, well, let, let, let the developers do their thing. They're going to, you know, do what the, where the, you know, build where the demand is um, versus government building housing everywhere. Right. And so we're, you're, it sounds like we're somewhere in the middle there. So what's the kind of, what's the proposal? What do you find in working and being effective across these, across the lines? Yeah. The, the way that we sell for that is we say all of the above, right? We, we okay. say, um, I, and this is something that, that I've learned as I've got into this. And I, I think maybe a lot of folks don't even necessarily realize that is that a lot of the reason there isn't the density in our cities. And again, here I'm specifically talking about, you know, our neighborhoods that I live a mile and a half from downtown. So I'm in one of these, what we often call these bungalow neighborhoods or around the downtown area is that it's actually government regulation that's preventing there from being any more density. There's these, this is, it's often very boring, but this is where the, to your point where the rubber meets the road is there's these zoning maps in the city that says what type of housing that you're allowed to build there and how many parking spots you're required to build and how big the lot has to be and how much of the lot you have to go use. And all these, um, these rules make it such that in most instances, you're actually only allowed to build a detached single family home. Even, even a mile and a half from downtown we're talking, you can only build that sort of housing. And so what we're saying is we need to loosen up some of those rules to allow us to build, look, I'm not saying let's build a skyscraper in the middle of College Park, but you know, how about a duplex? How about a fourplex? How about this, what we call this, you know, sort of three-story walk-up garden style apartment. This is what we refer to as this gentle density to build out a little bit more in this, what is really, I would consider our urban core to build out, let some folks, more folks move in there. And again, this isn't a mandate. This isn't saying you have to build a fourplex. If you want a single family home there, you can have a single family home there. But we think that we should at least let homeowners, property owners, builders, if the market demands it, to be able to build that level of density, some you know four units, maybe six units, something like that. So that's one that's one piece of it. Is we do we do feel like there are too many rules and regulations there that is um, arbitrarily tamping down on the supply that otherwise would would be there. We just I feel confident around even around my house here all the time, people are tearing down a smaller single family home and building up a bigger single family home. Right. We would love that builder and that property owner to have the option to, instead of putting back up one single family home, put up a duplex, put up a triplex, because that's going to, over time, allow a little bit more of those of that density. And you know, each half of the duplex is going to be less expensive than the one single family home. And so it maybe it lets another um, you know, a family move in there who otherwise couldn't afford to live in the area. And look, now the property owner has two incomes. And so it's, it's, it's kind of a win-win for everybody. Um, then the other side of it is, yeah, look, I mean, I think our view is that even if you let the, the market try to solve it, there's always going to be a contingent that um, isn't supported by that, right? In the same way that, um, you know, we have our, our, our sort of, there's, there's any number of things, right? Healthcare, any number of things. We ha- often have market solutions to it, but then there's a, a, a safety net for folks who the market isn't going to quite solve for. And so we do think that there's an important role for that as well. Um, you see this work in, um, in there's actually some interesting models in like Europe, where in, in Austria, where it's actually even mixed income. So somebody, you know, two individuals could be living in a unit right next to each other, the same exact unit, and just what they pay depends on their income. And so um, that way, you're not having segregated communities of just public housing in this corner, and then market housing over here, but that your your actual literal neighbors uh, might have subsidized units and some don't have subsidized units. So we do think we need to just rethink the way that we've done 
public housing over the last um, really decades and, and think more modern about how that can be done in a way that, that helps build communities up. But again, we think it's all of the above. And, and, and I think, and this is where we really, while we, while we do focus on all of the above, there are groups out there, at least that I see, that are focused on that, what we might call capital A, capital H affordable housing, which is a messy term. But often when we talk about it, we mean housing that is designated and carved out for lower income people and has rules around who you can rent it to and, and for what for what cost. There are already groups doing that. They're doing a good work on it. They're advocating for that. What we didn't see was anyone advocating for let's loosen up the rules around the, the level of density that we can go build. And importantly, you know, these conversations were, were being had, I'm sure, but it was oftentimes the builders who were having them, maybe the real associations who were having them. But we, we said, we think we can bring a new, a new voice to the conversation because look, I'm just a kid who loves Orlando. I, there's, no, there's no interest in it for me other than improving our city. And so we wanted to be a voice in that conversation to highlight that to say that this isn't just, you know, maybe a lobbyist group who's lobbying for this because it's going to help their business, but that there's actually a societal good that's going to come of this. And so we wanted to bring that voice to the conversation. And so that tends to be where we focus our effort is on loosening up some of those rules so that the market can come in and build some of this housing that's in such high demand. Yeah. I mean, a couple of things you made me think. So, so I've worked with, you know, I live in the downtown area as well. We're in a historic district, so highly yep. regulated. You want to touch anything, you got to go get approval. We're in approval process for something right now. Um, but so there are some, you know, existing duplexes in our area, right? Or, or even more, there's some, you know, six, seven unit um, properties nearby. What's happened, I mean, purely because of the inability to reclassify you know, land for that use is it drives the price up dramatically. And I've had this conversation with investors that it seems like an unreasonable, outrageous price that you're going to pay for these, but you could never create this again, right? In today's, in today's world. So um, no, I do see that. And, you know, but there's also the argument that somebody buys that and splits it up into multiple, you know, single families. And so I, it's really tough because these conversations have been had for years for different reasons along the way. Right. And, and they weren't experiencing the population boom we're experiencing now. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's, it's extremely interesting now regarding, um, isn't it hard to, to almost come at it from both perspectives, right? When the government gets involved, if they're, if they're putting money in a direction, it's going to influence what the developers are doing. Cause that's already happened. Right. I mean, that, like we look at, um, you know, section nine, you know, housing, which is, you know, around for some of that, some of that purpose. And, um, we've seen, you know, uh, apartment developers develop for section nine housing specifically because of the funding that comes with it. Mm. And then as soon as that section nine, you know, requirements over, they're eliminating it and raising prices and renovating. Right. So it's going to be taken advantage of to some extent, but how do you how do you reconcile the two? Yeah, I mean, there, there's there's um, you know sort of rules to tweak, right? To say, okay, one that means it needs to be affordable permanently, or or again, you know, we we like the idea of this mixed income housing where maybe you let a portion of it become uh, market rate, but some of it stays affordable because. Again, I think a lot of historically in the in the United States, and, and I won't pretend to be a, a total expert on this, but from what I've observed and learned, a lot of the history here is that a lot of these um, more of, you know, capital A, capital H affordable, publicly subsidized housing units have been all, they, you know, group them all in the same neighborhoods, right? And so that there's really a, 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 a segregated issue there 
Or what we want is to just have these integrated communities where you might not even realize that, that unit is subsidized. You have people paying market rate in there. So there's some things that you can do, I think, um, there. But the, the, the other thing is that, um, and this is important, I think, that, that I hit on for my friends who really focus a lot on that publicly subsidized housing is that, you know, what, the cost to build that is relative to the cost to build market housing. And mm -hmm. so if, if, if the, the price that someone will pay for market housing continues to go up, then more and more builders are going to say, I'm just going to go build market housing. And you're going to have fewer builders who are even interested in building these affordable projects. Right. Um, and, and oftentimes, you know, we're, or, or the way it'll work is a housing trust fund, like Orange County has a housing trust fund where they're going to essentially, this is a simple way to put it, but we'll buy at market rate that unit and then hold it such that it, it's, you know, it's going to be publicly subsidized through county dollars to be rented at a lower rate for a lower income person. Well, now they're paying market rate for it. And so in this sense, you know, a, a rising tide lifts all boats. We'll kind of reverse. So a lowering tide lowers all boats. If yeah. we can get the market rate to get a little bit more under control, then actually our dollars go further when it's time to start thinking about the subsidized housing. Because subsidized housing is just, it's not free. You're just shifting the dollars from private dollars to public dollars. And so we're paying that private price. And so that's why we continue to focus on getting the market rate down because we think that that's going to affect not just folks who, um, need that subsidized housing, but folks who, who don't as well are going to pay market rate. And, right. and that's another important point too. When we talk about affordable housing, I don't know if people fully appreciate how few people that is going to support. You, you, this is a, you're, you know, you're really certainly under median wage. Uh, even then there's often wait lists for it. And so I often see, you know, even, even friends of mine who, you know, make a, a decent salary, um, they're not making a ton of money, but they're, you know, median wage, maybe a little less, maybe a little bit more say, so, yeah, oh, we, we've got to go build more affordable housing with that. I don't think, I don't think really appreciating that even if we built more, you're not going to be eligible for it. Right. So where are we, how are we building? How, and, and I'm of the belief that even someone making $60,000 a year should also live in a place that's affordable. And so how are we solving the problem for that person? Well, that's the government's not going to solve that for us, at least given the, the, the current makeup that we have. That's, that's just not going to happen. There's not the infrastructure right. in place to go do that. If we wanted to go do that, that could take you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years for us to build out what that would look like, like they've done in, in other countries around the world. The reality of what we have today is that you're going to go live in market rate housing. And how are we going to bring that market rate down? Here's a set of solutions that we think can go do that. And so that's something we, talk, we, we try to get people to realize a lot is that you know, the word affordable housing is thrown around all the time, but what does it mean? For most people, it's not gonna apply. And so how can we find the market rate housing that works for them? That's where we need to, to look to some of the other solutions that we bring forward. Do you have a, I mean, because you're right, the, the affordable is gray in, in everybody's sense, right? Regardless what your income is. So is there a calculation that says, this is much, how much of someone's income should be required? You know, what is that affordability like ratio, so to speak? Yeah, typically it's about 30% of someone's income should be used on housing. And so then what they'll do is they'll say, uh, they might say, okay, this type, this housing development right here, these units are going to be uh, reserved for people who make at or below, say, 50% of median income, which in Orlando is about $60,000. So you can only rent this if you make $30,000 or less, it, it would say. And so then they'll just calculate, okay, what's, what's that salary, 30% of that, that's gonna be your, your monthly rental rate and that's what you can't charge more. And then there's, 
there's different ways that the the units uh, excuse me the, the building managers that have to report out their shit they're verifying income they're holding rent at this level and so it's it's reserved in that way but that's what they're typically looking at is they're making sure that um, people aren't paying more than 30% of their income. That's sort of the cardinal rule. And then they're looking at the, uh, the median income of the area. So specifically, they're looking at the greater Orlando median income. So someone renting out a subsidized unit would look very different in Orlando than it would in um, San Francisco, where their median income is much higher than ours, then their rental rate would be higher as well. It's specific to us. So that's the way that they're looking at it. They're looking at median income of the area, and then they're, they're trying to make sure that Folks are spending about a third of their income on housing. So I wish I had pulled this, had this ready to pull up on my computer. And I, I saved it the other day when I saw it. It's, it's something I follow. And I thought it was interesting. And I'll just kind of walk through it here. But it says, um, buyer income is still greater than required. Um, it's kind of the header. It says median family income compared with qualifying income. So this would be in regards to purchasing, not rents necessarily. So in this, or let's just do the U.S. first. So the median family income in the U.S. is $88,417. The qualifying income, this would be the income required to qualify to purchase, um, is $60,096, right? So there's still a pretty good gap there. Yeah. But again, we're, we're a small segment in Central Florida, Orlando, right? Versus, you know, the Midwest, as an example. What I found interesting, and I'm just kind of, it's helping people talk through this when they're saying, why are my prices going up so fast? Because if we compare ourselves to where we're seeing, uh, I've got a client right now coming from San Diego, hmm. buying a little, you know, 1800 square foot home here in Oviedo. Um, and they are beside themselves excited and they're paying what somebody in the neighborhood, oh, right. there's no yeah. way they're getting that price. But they're beside themselves because they got a little backyard, you know, they've got some some nice little upgrades, you know, it's a nice community. And, and it's just, it's funny because it's all perspective, but where they're coming from, the median family income is 90, just under $95,000 a year. The qualifying income there is $85,000 a year. So that gap is very close compared yeah. to the US. But then here in the South, this is not Florida specific, it's just broken down to the Southern region. The median family income is $80,683 and the qualifying income required would be just under 55,000. So we still have a big gap yeah. making me think that we're still rising, right? I mean, there's, there's no way to look at that when we're still seeing the fleet from the West and the Northeast down to our area where if they're overpaying or, you know, if they're paying significantly more than the required qualif qualifying rate, it's, it's not hurting. They're not, they're not feeling that difference, but we are yeah. locally. Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, a story that we see more and more of, of this, you know, the movement into Florida. And, and some will say, oh, make it stop, make it stop, right? I don't, my view is that, it's, is that growth can be a very good thing. The only thing worse than a growing region is a not growing region. And right. if you look around the U.S. at regions that, you know, maybe factories were wiped out or they had industries that are wiped out and, and those are shrinking populations. Areas with shrinking populations have a whole host of issues, especially if they're shrinking, not because of, of, of housing costs or anything, but just, you know, the industry is decaying. There's a lot of problems that come along with that. So growth can be good. We just have to know what to do with it. And that, that's a big if though, right? right? Is if we know what to do with it. And, and so what we're trying to do is help cities, help counties think about what to do with it. Because this is, a, in some ways, a new phenomenon for 
Orlando to have run out of, we're, we're, we're kind of running out of space, right? Uh, there's fewer places to, you know, clear cut and go put, excuse me, put in a neighborhood. And at some point you just reach a critical point where, you know, people don't want to commute an hour and 20 minutes into work. And so at some point you, you reach a limit on that. And so what we're trying to help counties and, and cities think about is where do you put that growth? And so if you, this is something I like to say too, which is that housing is not procreation. Building a 100 unit apartment did not create 100 people. The people are coming. Where are we going to put them? Are we going to put them three miles from downtown? Or are we going to put them 30 miles from downtown? Those are the only two options. So what are we going to pick? And when you, when you, when people sort of acknowledge that, that as much as you wish that no one moved into Orlando after you, you everyone wishes they were the last one to ever move here. But as much as you wish that, it's not going to happen. So let's accept the fact, let's be adults, let's talk about what the actual solution will be. And you have right. two options, you either build it close or you build it far. And so we advocate, or, or I guess you don't build it at all. And now there's affordability the crisis, which is what, what we've picked. So we've got, we've got to build. And if we're going to build, where are we going to build? And we want to build more more near our downtown even i mean even downtown orlando itself there's a, there's a bunch of parking lots surface parking lots in downtown orlando we need to be putting housing in these places and and doing it pretty pretty fast here yeah what um so in regards to you know kind of government intervention here with uh impact fees you know mm-hmm. because obviously that's a that's how they you know uh, at least whether whether they use it properly or not plan for transportation and the impacts there and schools and all this. Is there any, is that a conversation y'all are having with the city of Orlando as an example? Like what's, what's encouraging these parking lots to go vertical? Yeah, it's, it's a great, it's a great, great question. Um, we, uh, there's been some work. I actually just saw a policy come through recently in the city of Orlando to reduce those impact fees for affordable projects. So again, it's incentivizing, even carving out say 40% of the units to be affordable. So there's some things that you can do like that. Um, there's, uh, you know, my, my, my sort of pet, pet policy idea, it's kind of an obscure one and uh, <laughs> it's, it doesn't happen in Florida. It, nowhere in Florida do they do it, but they do it in, in Pennsylvania and some areas and it helps with something like this. So I'll use this opportunity to, to share about it, even though it, I don't think there's a realistic chance of it happening here. Throw some ideas at the wall, see what sticks. That's exactly right. So well, maybe once you start talking about it, maybe there'll be something there. It's called a <laughs> land value tax. Have you, have you heard of that before? Okay. It's like I said, it's kind of obscure. And basically it's this, it's a different way to do property taxes than what a property tax is today. So property tax today, let's take two different plots of land next to each other in the city of Orlando. And one is a surface parking lot and one is a high rise. A property tax says, I'm going to tax you based on the value of the land and the value of the building. So that high rise pays a lot more in taxes than the surface parking lot does. A land value tax says, I'm only going to tax the value of the land. And your tax rate is going to be a little higher because we have to account for the fact that there's sure. not as much building. And so, and so now the parking lot and the high rise pay the exact same amount in parking, or excuse me, in taxes, because their plots are right next to each other and they're worth the same amount of land. And so now how do I pay this tax bill on my parking lot in the middle of downtown? I better build a high rise. And by the way, that high rise isn't going to cost me any more in taxes. It's a tax-free high rise. I'm only going to pay the value of the land. I might as well build yeah. the high rise. And so it's a, it's a policy tool that helps encourage in these urban cores to build densely, because if you don't build densely, you're, you're, you're paying the tax, you're not getting all that's worth of it. And so that's, the, you know, and there, there's ways to, 
you could say we're going to tax, maybe we're going to tax some of the building, but not as much. You could decouple them. So your tax rate on the land is a little bit higher and your tax rate in the building is a little bit lower. Um, but it's a way, again, to reward building, to reward building in our core, because that's what we want in the cities. We want to build in our core um, while kind of punishing people who just sit on land in the middle of a city. And if you're just sitting on land in a parking lot in hopes that one day it's worth more or you just like the parking revenue, that's a waste of land in the middle of our city. And we'd rather you do something more productive with it. And so we're going to reward you. We're not going to tax the building. You go build a building and, and, and that'll be better for everybody. So that's kind of an obscure one, but uh, yeah. they've tried it and they've had it in Pennsylvania for a few decades and um, in some parts of the world and it, and it seems to be successful. Well, it's definitely, when you look at our tax bills here, it's, it's land value and then building value and then your total assessed value. And so it is easier to evaluate just the value of the land for sure. It's pretty standardized. Like each block has about the same per acre, yeah. you know, valuation. Um, so one, the other thing I was going to ask, so like if you build something in the middle of downtown, let's just say, let's just say you were building for um, very localized group of people, right? You're probably, you know, uh, um, uh, not families, not necessarily that you can not, we, no, we don't discriminate. Right. But you can, you can guess who's going to be coming to the building based on where it is. Yep. If you had less parking, you know, per unit, right. If they started reducing those probably like you do in New York, where, you know, uh, a, a parking spot is extremely expensive because there's so few per unit available. So it encourages walking or other forms of transportation. Why in effect would they be levying the same impact fees when these people probably aren't sending kids to school and they're probably not putting more cars on the road. You know, it's, it's, I know it's kind of, it's got somewhat backwards. I know it's impossible to predict who's going to live here, but um, kind of same thing with 55 plus communities. Why are they paying um, for the schools? You know, I don't know. It's interesting. It's a great, especially when it comes to those transportation impact fees, like you said, you know, we don't have, because there's state rules around how you can levy them and stuff. And so we don't have a ton of flexibility, but in an ideal world, sure, what you would love to do is an impact fee on a house, you know, 20 miles east on Colonial should really be quite high because the cost then of getting that person into where their job's going to be, you probably one day going to have to widen Colonial or build a, a train line out there or something. That's really expensive. And by the way, you're going to need to build them roads to get to Publix and to get to schools because you're going to be driving everywhere. Whereas an impact fee for transportation on a building that's on top of a semi-rail station should maybe be zero. I mean, the, the train's already built. An impact fee is supposed to, to pay for the cost of the new person moving there. If they're walking and biking and taking the train and all that's already built out, there's really no impact. This is kind of exaggerated, but you would love that sort of flexibility to let it be a little bit more, you know, maybe some overlays that would indicate how close you are to this transit and your impact would be much lower. You would definitely love to see something like that. We're a little limited in the kind of flexibility, but um, no doubt, you're exactly right, is what's the actual, the impact fee is supposed to pay for the impact, but it's kind of out of whack on, on, on how we're measuring those impacts. They kind of just take the regional average and apply it. There's some exception, you know, multifamily is less on a per unit basis than single family, but not nearly as much as you would expect based right. on the proximity to transit. Yeah, on a, just on a, it's prorated on a per unit basis, I guess. Yeah, right? that's right. That's right. That's right. Um, I'm interested to hear about... Uh, you wrote in one of your articles, you spent the month of January, either on foot or on bike or public transit. How'd that go? What, yeah, what, so, what stirred that, stirred that up? 
Well, you know, uh, weather's beautiful in Florida in January, which is one of the things why it'd be hard anyway. Uh, so yeah, in the month of January, I went car free. I didn't use my car at all in the month of January. Again, I live fairly close to downtown. And so that's easier for me than for some others. Um, I used the bus. There's a bus stop, you know, four minute walk from where I'm at. Where, and honestly, to be, to, what's that? Did you know where the bus stop was before this started? It's so funny. I was just about to say that is before that, I, I, you know, probably drove by it or even I biked by it, but didn't really pay that much attention to it. But so, yeah, I learned about where the stops are and where they go. But I, I lived in Washington, D.C. for a few years and I took the bus everywhere. And so I'm familiar with how to do it and the app and stuff like that. But I hadn't done it a whole lot in Orlando. So I had to learn where all that was at. Um, but look, where I was at, it could get me most of where I wanted to go fairly easily, especially, you know, I'm, I'm comfortable on the bike. And so throw the bike on the front of the bus and could get almost anywhere. Um, it would take me a little bit more time, but also, I, I learned a lot more about the city while doing it. I learned shops that I hadn't noticed before. I figured out, you know, where cross streets cut through and, and things like that. Uh, even on the bus when, yeah, I'm still moving as fast as a car, but I'm not focused on driving. I can just kind of look around, enjoy the scenery. I, I, I noticed a bunch of restaurants that I had heard of for years and just didn't quite appreciate where they were at. You learn a lot about your city um, when you when you go about it in that way. And so I just wanted to do that. I wanted to learn about it a little bit more and, and see what it was like and see how hard it would be, how easy it would be. And um, look, there's no doubt I had to adjust what I was going to do. Right. Yeah. So if someone wanted to get coffee, I just would say, hey, I'm not going to meet you out by UCF. It'll take me four hours to get there. And so let's let's do it over here or let's I can get here pretty easily. And so if you have the flexibility to be able to adjust what you're doing a little bit, um, it, 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 wasn't, it wasn't so bad. And I took Samuel with me sometimes at the T-roll. It's, it's not that bad. Very cool. So, uh, yeah, we're doing this via Zoom. How much impact do you think Zoom will have or, or yeah, not Zoom, but the, uh, the virtual world where, you know, kind of been forced into over the last couple of years, which I was I, I like being in front of people. Right. I like I like my people in the office. I like, you know, but we've had to adapt. I mean, for many, many reasons, how do you think that impacts? And that's why I think we're seeing a lot of impact here in Orlando on our home values is because people are choosing to work remotely and why not live where you want to live and keep the job you, you had in San Francisco or, you know, wherever it is. This is the question of all the questions that people talk about in this space that I have the least amount of certainty about. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't know. I think that it could go in a lot of different ways. I think you're right. One thing we're seeing for sure is that people who in more high cost of living areas, if they can work remote, they'd rather do it from sunny Florida. Uh, and so they're going to come down here and work remote. So I think that that's one thing for sure. I think a lot about how it cuts in two different ways. The other one I think about is like we were talking about earlier, the little boroughs, right? The little neighborhoods on, um, if you are always in that neighborhood and you're working remotely, especially if both, if you, know, if you have a spouse and you're both working remotely, kids go to school just down the road, do we see more families? We've, we've talked about in our house going down to one car permanently between the two of right. us. Can you see more of that? If, you're not, if you don't need to do that long commute anyway, is that an opportunity to go do that and, and, and build out a little bit more there? And if that happens, by the way, people say Orlando's full. Orlando when it feels crowded, at least in my view, I've never felt crowded by people. Sometimes you feel crowded by cars. And so if there are fewer cars, that does let you build a little bit more densely and not quite feel the crowded nature of it. So that's one that I wonder how that shakes out. I don't have a good sense of it yet. 
The big unknown to me is what happens to our central business districts that are that are in downtown, especially a city like Orlando that is very much, you know, the central business district at 6 p.m. is often very, very quiet, right? People have commuted out and maybe it picks up again at 8 p.m. or something like that. But I do wonder what happens there. If those jobs clear out, how do they use that space? What happens to the lunch spots? Stuff like that. I don't have a good sense of that. But um, as a guy who loves cities and believes in cities, it, it gives me a little bit of pause. I, I do wonder what that does to our cities. Yeah. Well, I think there's people that also love more space around them too, right? Yeah. So the ability to leave Manhattan and work remotely from your computer in Lake County, um, you know, on get 10 acres and, you know. I mean, yeah, totally. So it's, and we've seen every side of this, which is, which is what's so fascinating that it, that it's allowing almost a new lifestyle for people that they never thought could exist with their career path. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's super interesting and, but that would allow the spread transportation's not solved with that. I mean, it's would be a, you know, car requirement situation, but um, yeah, I, I'm right there with you. I, I don't know how it pans out long-term. I think people are all, we're, we're made for community to some extent. Um, you know, so I think there will always be a desire to be around people, but maybe only when you choose to, I don't know. Yeah. 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 I'm very, very curious to see how that, how that pans out. One of the things I was going to ask you, you mentioned, you know, with a spouse that works, this is something I've, I've kind of seen as a, um, as, as we've seen values go up, right. Uh, affordability to me has always been income level, you know, coupled with the cost of ownership. Right. So as we've seen more dual income households, we've also seen, you know, a pretty dramatic increase in, in housing. And I, I just, I don't know if you've read anything or, or kind of looked at this at all, but it certainly puts, you know, single income housing um, or single income households at a disadvantage in this world where, you know, there's oftentimes two spouses working, maybe one's working from home, but um, two incomes nonetheless. Yeah, there's um, again this one I'm not an expert on, but but there is a an, an economic phenomenon or theory, I guess, uh, uh, idea called the two income trap, and it's it's kind of a, an economic history of the U.S. over the last few decades, and it's exactly what you're talking about, Justin. It's this idea. It's just it's not making a, a statement on if this is good or bad. It's just looking at the data and what we've seen over the last few decades as more and more houses, more and more families became two income households. Now there's more disposable income and it, you know, when there's more disposable income, it starts to drive prices up. People can afford a little bit more housing. So they're going to go buy more housing and it drives the cost of housing up, the cost of a lot of different goods up and up, the cost of healthcare up, the cost of college tuition up. As people get more wealthy, it drives the price of things up. That's just the nature of things. And so as more and more households in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s became two two income households in the United States, the economic data says there's maybe something to that was what was driving a lot of the prices up. And so now the prices are up and that's why they call it the two income trap. Now you're, now you're trapped. Now you need both incomes to have those things and you don't have the option anymore to have a one income whole household. So there's a lot you know, more into it, the ways to, to look at that data and to think about it. But I think it's a provocative theory to think about maybe why we've seen some of this price increases over the last several decades and what it's now necessitated in some cases for families to be two income households, just to, to have, you know, we talk about 
people talk about a lot. No, in the in the 50s, you could just have one income in your household and you could buy a house and it was and it was easy. And you can't do that anymore. And there actually might be a causal effect there, but because there's so many two-income households, it made the prices more expensive. Right and now, now families need that. So I'm not an expert on that, but yeah. it's a provocative theory that maybe some folks can check out. I think it's well, it, it probably also increased the gap, right? From the from you know, because when you have a two-household, two-income household, you now you've got childcare person, right? Who's, mm, who's yeah. certainly at a different wage level. Um, you know, it almost it almost creates more need for lower income service industry type, you know, that's widening that gap from household to household. So that's an interesting thought. Yeah, that, that's I, I, I get there's a whole book about it. I should read the book, but I wonder if I talk about that because that's, yeah. that's a really good. That's I just good I just remember uh, my wife and I were driving from um, uh, where we're we going from L.A. down to San Diego on the on the uh, Pacific Coast Highway. We stopped in Laguna Beach, which is if you've not been through Laguna Beach, it is everything you could imagine right it's just beautiful like you know 100 million dollar mansions on the coastline and but we're at this restaurant and you look around and you're like where do the people that work here possibly live and we ended up asking and the girls like like three hours that way you know essentially over the mountains into the desert kind of situation and um you know it's just it's 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 crazy but that that wealth creates you know, somebody willing to drive there for that kind of work. Um, yeah. You just hope you don't get to that here. Um, but I don't know. I'm not, I'm not, I don't have a dog in the fight trying to manage outcomes. I think it's just, it's interesting to kind of talk about some of these things that we're seeing as, as time goes on. Yeah. But we do think about that in housing context, no doubt on, again, going back to what is it, what is a community and what policies are in place that are, are building those sorts of communities is, you know, we just want, and this is where, Going back earlier, we talked a little bit about who's who's this for and who's who's benefiting from it. And a lot of people think, oh, I've got I'm a homeowner. This doesn't affect rising home prices. That's actually great for me. I don't I don't mind that. But not only are, you know, one, if you ever wanted to move now, you might feel stuck because there's nothing else for you to move to. But also who's who's in your neighborhood? Are you able to have the the folks working in service service sectors to support the businesses that you want? We see this. And in, in Orlando, you know, part of there's restaurants who can't open because there aren't workers who, who will work there. Sometimes like they, they can't afford to live near here. And so they're, if they live out in Lake County, they're just going to go work at the Chipotle in Lake County because that's right. where they're living already. And so they just rather go work there instead is can, can the teachers live in the communities that they teach in? Can law enforcement, can firefighters, can all these occupations live where they work? We want to make sure that they can. Um, and more and more, I worry that the answer to that might be no. <laughs> I, I will say I've talked to many teachers and uh, law enforcement that want nothing to do with living. Fair in enough. Community, so. Yeah, <laughs> fair, fair, <laughs> enough, fair enough. <laughs> put them in put them in that neighboring community, you know? Yeah. Like, I do not want to see my students when I'm out to dinner, you know? Work-life balance. Yeah, I yeah. guess that's <laughs> <laughs> So yeah. I appreciate you doing this. And if somebody wants to like connect with you or look into this further or check out Yimby, where do they where do they do that? Yeah, so they should check out orlandoyimby.org. Um, they can sign up for our newsletter. We do a monthly newsletter that just kind of does a roundup of what we're up to, uh, what's going on in the news. We won't spam you too much, really just, just one a month, maybe two. Um, and then on there too, you can find, we've got a Facebook page, a Twitter page. If people want to connect with me, they can find me on LinkedIn, um, on Facebook, on Twitter. Um, find me on there, connect me there. I'll chat with anybody about this stuff anytime, whether you agree or disagree, just have an opinion. And that makes yeah. for a good conversation. So I'm always happy to do that too. Awesome. Hey, Austin, I appreciate it, man. This was fun.
Yeah, thanks so much, Justin. I had a good time.